welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. What is the importance of a breast? Well, I think most of us realize it functions as more than just an organ producing nutrition for an infant. And many times its mere presence is a source of well-being to a woman, of feeling whole or complete. So when the surgical loss of one or both breasts occurs, reconstruction can be the path to restore much more than just a physical body part. Now for those who have personally faced the difficult situation of breast cancer or know someone who has, the thought of how to reconstruct a breast after the original has been removed may be daunting. But it's a fascinating concept, the creation of a realistic breast, and it can be done in more than one way. In fact, there are two main categories of breast reconstruction, namely implant-based and what's called autologous or flap-based, meaning using the body's own tissues. Though I'll mention there is a third category called fat transfer, but we'll discuss that in more detail in a future podcast. While previous episode number 21 goes over some great basics of breast reconstruction, right now we're embarking on the first of a two-part series about breast reconstruction, and this first episode will be dedicated to the topic of using an implant to create a new breast. Yes, today we're speaking with Dr. Brian Thornton, an experienced plastic surgeon who has dedicated the majority of his practice to those in need of breast reconstruction, and he explains what implant reconstruction is all about. He puts so much thought into the care his patients are provided and meticulously contemplates each step of the way that it's no wonder he is so very much appreciated among his patients and colleagues. Let's listen to what he has to say. Well, I'm pleased today to have with me Dr. Brian Thornton, who is a plastic surgeon in Louisville, Kentucky, and he's been in practice there for 18 years. Welcome, Dr. Thornton. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Great. Well, you know, first of all, you've developed a pretty good reputation for your skills at reconstructing a breast after removal for cancer known as mastectomy. Is this the majority of patients you treat in your Louisville practice? It's, it's really the focus of the practice. You know, a lot of plastic surgeons tend to dabble a little bit as they're building their cosmetic lifestyle. And I've just always felt very dedicated to our breast cancer patients. I just had a real emotional draw to that. I just didn't feel like it was good of me to give up on their needs because they're very important. And I feel like, you know, those first three to five years of kind of working with them and then moving on to maybe more financially rewarding waters doesn't really stack up to who I was deep down inside. I'm, I'm financially rewarded enough. I'm happy with what we do. And I feel like I'm trying to make a difference in patients' lives. And, and breast reconstruction really fulfills all those quotas from them. And how did you 
come to that, you know, I know you were well-trained in plastic surgery and you got exposed to breast reconstruction within that. Is that when you caught the bug, so to speak? Or was it later as you started practicing and then you really coned everything down to breast reconstruction? Yeah, it kind of happened organically. You know, I think as a lot of residents come out of practice and join a practice as I did, and, you know, there was a lot of breast reconstruction going on. The senior partner wanted to move on to more cosmetic waters at that point in time. And so I kind of took over the referrals and took over the needs of those patients and continued to grow. And that was in 2005. And about three or four years into that, the economy went a little sideways for those of us who remember the 2008 banking crisis. And I realized in that moment, yeah, what I was doing was economic proof that like my business model didn't change, but there were a lot of plastic surgeons who were struggling a little bit on the cosmetic side as those financial uh, capacities of other individuals kind of dried up. And so I, I, that was the first moment I learned like, well, financially, this is very stable through time. And then it was just a question of building over time. And I, I think as many of us look back and, and don't realize even how we got here or, or what happened to get me here, my accidental life has been just blessed, as I would say, and and just continue to enjoy that and continue to take on the challenging needs that those breast cancer patients had. Yeah. Well, before we get into some of the details about breast reconstruction, what are some of your favorite things about the field of breast reconstruction? What do you love about it? It's the patients, right? It's the patients and their and their spouses and families. I think, you know, Plastic surgery is a very different form of medicine. As I tell most people, I'm not really a doctor, but I'm a plastic surgeon. Most of us don't take care of patients in their worst possible times, right? We certainly did that through training, but reconstruction allows us that. We pick up the patient's in their moment of pieces as the world's falling apart and they're contemplating the loss of a breast. And what that might be like is hard for me to understand as a man and never obviously going through this. But it, it's really that. And then, of course, comes the challenges. I mean, a breast dog, quite frankly, is very simple to do. Breast augmentation to enlarge the breast. Yeah, simply to make the breast bigger is, is a wonderful thing for those patients who want that. To rebuild the breast after its loss, and in particular today, making it look much maybe better than it did even before, applying cosmetic principles uh-huh. has really made it such a different thing. Um, for the first five to 10 years of the practice before nipple sparing, you know, saving the nipple for a woman, it's really today like I don't think about doing reconstruction until I first figure out how we can save the nipple because that part of the anatomy of the breast is so difficult to replicate, so mm-hmm. difficult to recreate. And is really the boardwalk of the monopoly game, in my opinion. It's so important. So, all these techniques over the last maybe five to eight years has really catapulted me in a, a much happier reconstructive surgeon because our patients are having better outcomes. And it's just as a result of many individuals that I stand on top of to be here today. Yeah. Well, and I think our listeners may need to understand that often it is a general surgeon who is doing the breast removal, the mastectomy, and then the plastic surgeon steps in and does the reconstruction part, whether that is at the same time, immediate is what we call that, or if it is a delayed procedure. But getting back to what you were saying about uh, nipple sparing, that is a technique of breast removal of mastectomy, but traditionally the nipple would have been part of that tissue removed, basically. But there is a tendency now more towards sparing that nipple and just removing the breast underneath the shell of the skin. So 
I would imagine there has to be a lot of cooperation between you and the general surgeon in terms of understanding of what type of mastectomy they're going to do. Um, first and foremost, you want to treat the cancer, but you also want to set things up as nicely as possible so that reconstruction can be a good possibility. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I think, you know, the history of plastic surgeons and our breast mastectomy surgeons, you know, starts off not very collaborative. Through the 70s and 80s and 90s, many women were told, like, reconstruction of your breast isn't that important. I'm saving you from cancer. And over time, we moved away from that and really started the relationship of, one, reconstruction doesn't need to impact patients' care, but it certainly will impact their emotional and physical recovery over the rest of their life and how very important that is. Yeah, mental health. Mental health, that's right. And so really, you know, that relationship over time for me has really worked. And I think the advantages of our patients, we certainly have maybe some dated surgeons who don't feel like saving the nipple is important for a patient. And I obviously would disagree with that. And how to handle that relationship either works in a collaborative fashion where we get them thinking about and performing and helping them understand how to do nipple sparing mastectomies. Or maybe they just don't have access to patients with breast cancer anymore because they're self-selecting themselves out. Mm -hmm. Patients are savvy today with your podcast and social media to understand what the options are and really will demand that from their breast surgeons. And my observation over the last less than 18 years or so is the fact that if you're not performing standard of care today, you're kind of not really involved in their care anymore. And so we see that more and more and across the planet as it maybe should be. So really, we stand on them because what they do really sets us up for the best possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so saving that nipple and, and healthy skin living after they're done with the mastectomy is really incumbent upon them and their techniques. And so as I tell the patients, they have a very tough job to do. Their job is they're trying to save you from cancer. Their job for me is trying not to kill your skin. And that's really difficult to do sometimes. And so we really appreciate our breast surgeons setting us up and taking care of our patients. Yeah. And uh, again, to point out for our listeners that um, certainly breast reconstruction can be done if the nipple is not spared or saved. Um, that's perhaps even a more traditional way. But uh, I'm sure people would wonder, with nipple sparing mastectomies, what is the current thinking about possibly leaving behind any tissue that could have a malignant potential? Well, we have well over 10 years of data to suggest that saving the nipple does not increase the risk of future cancer for women if it's done correctly. And by correctly, that standard of care currently now is the breast is removed, the formal nipple location on the breast is tagged, but a separate specimen is sent out from underneath the nipple to kind of shell out as much breast tissue as possible. And so for those patients who are unsure about that, I remind them that even in the best capable hands, about one to 2% of the volume or weight of the breast is still left behind in the skin. We've not removed all the breast. You're never going to have all the breast removed, sort of a terribly disfiguring surgery that does not increase the chance of survival. So why would we not want to save that nipple when done standard of care? Because your risk of recurrence has not changed, but the outcome aesthetically is just so much more important, less disturbance to the shape of the skin, less visible scars, and a lot of things that we know with simple or traditional mastectomies that really fall short of the mark, in my opinion, of nipple sparing mastectomy. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Well, and let's take a step back just a minute. Could you give a brief explanation of the main two categories of breast reconstruction and maybe a mini synopsis of what are generally thought to be the pros and cons of these? 
Yeah. So there are two main categories for breast reconstruction. The use of artificial devices, that's an implant ultimately, maybe starting with an expander or device that can be placed under the skin to stretch the skin out in a similar way that the pregnancy of an abdomen might occur. So that's one pathway that accounts for about 80% by current um, standards or recollection in the United States. The remaining 20% involves some form of what's referred to as autologous, auto meaning your own tissue to reform the breast. The basic breakdown is this. The advantage of autologous reconstruction is it's all them. Implants will go bad over time and need to be replaced, need to have maintenance on them. I tell patients like tires on your car, but using your own tissues is you forever. If you gain weight, your breasts get bigger. If you lose weight, your breasts get smaller. The problem with autologous, generally speaking, is it's a little unpredictable in its outcome based upon blood supply concerns. So as we move tissue from a variety of different spots on the abdomen, the most common from the lower abdomen up into the breast, that tissue has to have a blood supply to stay alive. And if that tissue, the blood supply is not robust enough, it gets kinked, it gets twisted during surgery, that tissue will die following surgery. So they tend to be long surgeries, you know, maybe four, six, eight hours, a much more involved recovery with that. But the outcomes are really, as we know, in quality of life long-term tend to be a little bit better, but it's that unpredictable nature. And generally speaking, I use a public domain website called abrascore.org where you can put in patients' risk factors, their height, their weight, smoking, and a variety of things. And it will spit out for the patient or you as the consumer, the podcast listener, your predicted risk of each one of those surgeries. And generally speaking, over the last five years of using it or so, we've noticed that there are autologous forms of reconstruction, the tram flaps. From that lower abdomen. Lower abdomen tend to have double the risk of complications implant-based reconstruction. So that's the yin and the yang of it. You know, you're looking at more than one surgery, almost regardless of any form of reconstruction you do. And, and I think what's really a struggle for my heavier patients is they have excess. And that to them seems like a great idea. I can get a flatter belly and get my breast reconstructed. Right. And I think we sold that for many years as plastic surgeons. But as I point out to patients, it's not a tummy tuck. And the problem is, as we have more weight issues, we tend to have worse blood supply problems, more fragile fat, and the complications go up. So, you know, implant-based reconstruction has been the dominant workforce for 15 or so years. I don't think that's probably going to go away. Yeah. I will say that uh, we are talking about two main categories here. You know, there is a growing direction of fat transfer to reconstruct a breast. However, that does take certainly more than one treatment. And again, there is a fair amount of unpredictability with it, too. So. Yeah, I have one patient currently going through that. She's undergone her first fat graft. And the problem is exactly as you said, you know, you're looking at one to five surgeries. It's very unpredictable how much fat's going to survive. So my current thought is I think fat is a really great adjuvant. There's no one implant that fits any woman's breast. And the use of fat to supplement that implant to really fill in the hallmarks of their breast is terribly important. Yeah, Recreating the breast all with fat, I think is a fascinating concept. I just don't think we're there yet as the science. And so maybe in time. Yeah. So using fat to fine tune the result after an implant or even after a flap, an autologous flap, and to blend the edges to normal tissue and give it a better overall appeal. It's, you're right. It's a great tool. Um, 
today we're focusing mainly on implant reconstruction, and that is your forte, and I'm so pleased that you're here to talk to us about it. Could you give us a little bit of insight? It seems like during the last few decades, implant reconstruction has gone through a bit of a roller coaster ride with ups and downs in terms of overall breast contour results and problem fee recovery. And lately, though, it seems to have had a relative resurgence in the favor of surgeons. So what are your thoughts on that? And what have been some new developments that maybe are related to some of this? Well, so I think it first starts with the implant itself. You know, when I first started in practice, really the only implants were available were more meant for the augmentation patients. And we had to make them do to fit the needs of our reconstruction patients. So over certainly the last probably five to 10 years, we've seen this real understanding that those implants are not exactly what I need. So one, implant development or the idea of implants specially made for our breast cancer patients are terribly important. In terms of shape or configuration? and Shape and size and projection. There's a lot of different things about the implant that Normally, we don't involve the patient with because they're complex even for us, but they really help us to further fine-tune what the patients are asking us for or looking for in their reconstruction. I think one of the biggest things that's happened in our practice is that historically, breast reconstruction with implants in particular was always under the pectoralis major, the big chest muscle, the chest wall. Mm -hmm. Usually, autologous reconstruction, the use of patients on tissue is above that. And so when we were under the muscle, one, it was a really difficult recovery, lots of pain. You know, it was not uncommon to have patients Mm -hmm. on pain narcotics for several weeks. And then as we got them to the implant, one of the most disturbing features of that is something called muscular animation. Every time the patient would flex that muscle, lifting, thinking, twisting open door handles, whatever that is, it really imparts a major movement of the implant that's very unnatural. So at least for us, I became aware in 2014 of some individuals doing above the muscle reconstruction that likened back to the 70s when we really first started thinking about doing breast reconstruction. So in 2015, we first it was the first time we dove above the muscle, as we said, and we've never looked back because suddenly recovery was better, expansion was easier, there was less pain for patients, and ultimately the aesthetic result wasn't impacted by the muscle, only the skin. So we could eliminate a really hard to control object of the patient, that muscle and its forces on the implant. And now we deal just with skin. So I think those have been the two big changes in my mind that have really escalated the care of our breast cancer reconstruction patients. What about the advent of something called a cellular dermal matrix? Could you explain what that is and what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So in the early 2000s, Uh, We became aware that several companies were taking patients who had expired, who donated their organs, including their skin, back into science. So unlike an organ, if I gave you my kidney today, Regina, and good luck with it, (laughs) you would take anti-rejection drugs for the rest of your life. But there's nothing cellular in the patient's skin that's been donated. So it's been removed of all that. It's just collagen scaffold. So initially on the submuscular reconstruction days, we would release the muscle to allow the lower part of the breast to develop as we put the implant, as we did expansion. But that created some problems and control of devices is one of them. So the devices may slip around. 
So in about 2005, a plastic surgeon described the use of this material as a way to sling or hammock that kind of distance from the bottom of the muscle to the bottom of the breast. That's a good analogy. Yeah, and I think with that, dermis has never taken a sidestep back. It's almost standard of care, perhaps, in the need of breast reconstruction. And so I explained to patients, this is skin under your skin. We'll never see that skin, but it's providing support to your breasts. Because in the pre-mastectomy skate, two things really hold up your breast. The skin, which does a terrible job, but cables that run from the skin through the breast to the chest wall. And those cables are removed with a mastectomy and your breast is going to be weaker. So I'm adding strength to your skin with more skin simply to support the weight of the implant to follow because we want that implant to sit pretty and perky over time, not low, maybe like the breast would be otherwise. So kind of like an internal bra. So it's very much so like an internal bra. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. With all these tools that you now have, you know, in the past, I've heard you say that the goals of breast reconstruction are to create something that looks like a breast and something that feels soft like a breast. So how do you accomplish that with the process of implant-based reconstruction? And I think um, as you do that, could you explain also the concept of tissue expansion and permanent implant? I feel like if we don't get a good cosmetic result for the patient, we have not done them justice. So today, in my opinion, I want those patients to be able to feel comfortable walking topless in any atmosphere they want, because that to me is a real success. So how do we do that? Well, one, we wanna think about being above the muscle so that the breast doesn't animate if they're gonna be topless. Typically, as we talked about, I like to use an expander first, which is an implant that allows adjustability of size after surgery in the office with the patient's input. I think that's terribly important for two reasons. One, it gives patients control of their life in a moment where they have no control, right? They're facing loss of a breast and whatever that must look and feel like to them, the potential chemotherapy and hair loss and further embarrassment maybe radiation, all these things are being thrown at them in order to cure them of their cancer, but they don't get a lot of input about that. So the beauty of the expander starts with the fact of in this moment, when the world feels like it's falling apart, you have control. If you wanna be bigger, good for you. If you wanna be smaller, good for you. If you wanna be the same size, good for you. You're in control of that. We're here to help facilitate that. And how is that done? How is that expansion in the office done? So usually within a week or two after surgery, they'll come back and see us. Tissue expanders have a little circle, like a port, like a chemo port, if you've ever seen one of those. They're integrating the device. So unlike a chemo port that sometimes stands off the chest as another telltale sign, this is inside the skin. We don't really see that, but it does have a magnet in it. So we simply run a little magnet finder over that that tells us where that port is. We sterilize the skin or clean the skin with some alcohol, place a needle through that skin. The skin is usually numb, so it's tolerated very well, into the expander and then add fluid to the device. Maybe a half a cup, maybe less, a little more. And typically that'll happen week to week to week until patients finally realize, hey, I like this size. This is good for me. It's close to what I had. It's bigger than where I was. It's smaller because that's where I want to be. But they have provided that feedback for us which gets to the second part about why I like an expander, which is I don't have to pick out the size of their breast. You know, there are other options in using implants for breast reconstruction. One option is to skip the expander, just move to the implant. It's a great option because you kind of get to avoid some of the other problems of expanders. They're not the softest breast. 
They're usually very rigid and hard, only temporary as I tell patients, but, but not the best device. But the problem is if I'm picking out the size of the implant, that really means I'm picking out the size of their breast. And, and whether I get that right or not is really hard to tell. My experience has been in that moment, most women are not really talking about cup sizes to me, how big I might want. They're really worried about what's about to happen to them. So there are two reasons why I like the expander, patient empowerment, and it gets me out of trying to figure out what size they want to be. Let them help us understand that and be in control. Good point. And then after you have completed the expansion process and then they go back for a second surgery to remove that expander, which was not intended to be permanent, and then you put the permanent implant in based on the size that you and the patient have discussed, are there other things that you do at that time to kind of refine the shape and the feel of the breast? Yeah. So generally speaking, you know, plastic surgeons do this a variety of different ways. For us, most patients will have the expander for about four months, maybe a month to two months of weekly visits to expand the skin envelope to get them to the volumes, quote, size they want to be. The problem with the expander are we typically sew them to patients so they don't move. I think a breast should move. I think a breast should be soft to the touch and then expanders is not. So you're right. A second surgery is required when we use the expander. So back to surgery. Um, typically, the first surgery with mastectomy requires drains. The second surgery does not. It's a much easier recovery of a surgery. But the goal is to take out the expander, replace that with a maybe semi-permanent implant, as I would use, because no implant lasts forever. That may be a saline or a silicone implant based upon patient choices of what they would want. And, of course, my feedback. I think the other big component that you're getting at is a concept called fat grafting. Barring a little fat from somewhere on the patients, usually the belly or the thighs are my two favorite spots, and use that as a filler, just like we would think about in the cheeks or the face, but use that like a filler around the implant. That's important because one, it can help hide some of the problems of implants. Implants can ripple and wrinkle, and that can be transmitted through the skin, and a breast shouldn't do that in my opinion. And again, as we talked about, to feather those edges or to provide thickness where maybe there's not a great implant to fit that space, I use the fat to augment the implant. So that's the other reason why if at mastectomy we're just going to put the implant in a patient, we can't do this concept of fat grafting at the same time. They're still going to need a second surgery. And while in my opinion, breast reconstruction requires two surgeries, it's something and then fat at the second one. And whether you put an expander or implant in, all patients will need that and why I prefer the expander because it'll predictably get a patient the implant size they want without also having to replace their implants, increasing the cost of uh, healthcare delivery. If I put too big of an implant in, well, I'll just come back and fix that when we put in some fat, but that's a thousand dollars of breast of implants that I'm about to throw in the trash can. So let's get yeah. it right the first time by allowing the patient to help us with that. Yeah. That's great. Well, who do you think is a good candidate for implant reconstruction? Does the type of planned mastectomy really play a part of the configuration of the original breast? I think all patients are, but I think you have to think about the end at the beginning. And oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And, and I think you're, you're way ahead of me, Regina. But at this point in my career, I realize you look very smart to patients if you can predict the future. You probably always look smart if you can predict the future to anyone. <laughs> right. But, but that, but that <laughs> if <ca> only. <laughs> if only, right. But that capacity comes with experience, right? And so I look back over time and realize 
Like if a patient has a really large breast, maybe F, G cup size, it's very totic is the professional word we use for a saggy breast. If we do just an incision that removes the nipple of that woman's breast, now they have a skin envelope that may be down on their abdominal wall that they don't like, and their reconstruction is going to follow that. And that patient will not be happy with the result because we really didn't do the right surgery in the beginning. And I'm going to suffer the rest of my life, as will that patient, with a poor choice. So to me, it's about understanding patient desires. You know, do you want that large breast again? Most large-breasted patients want to be smaller. Most small want to be bigger. So for those patients, we would typically recommend more of a breast reduction style set of incisions. A wise pattern, which reduces the two problems of a large breast, the width of the breast as well as the length. It creates more scarring on the breast, but those scarrings are more consistent with a breast reduction. And so those patients may ultimately look like they got a breast reduction and not a mastectomy. And I still consider that a win. Mm -hmm. That has also allowed us for low stage cancers or high risk genetic patients, the BRCA1, 2, there's about 30 different genes that have been linked to breast cancer. For those patients undergoing prophylactic mastectomy to do what we call stage them. If the nipples are low, they want to keep their nipples. I definitely want to keep their nipples. Let's ask insurance, will you allow us to go back and do a lift of your breast first, reset that footprint of the breast, get that nipple higher, and then a couple months later proceed with mastectomy and going to have a result that looks like they had a cosmetic surgery, an aug mastopexy as we call that in the business, which is a lift of the breast and volume of the breast from the implant. So I think it's those experiences over 10, 15, whatever your practice life cycle is, really allows you to understand what's possible, but then ask the patient what they want, and then figure out how to dovetail those two things together. Yeah, makes sense. Well, hey, I do want to take a minute and just sidetrack here a little bit, because I've been thinking about this as we've been talking. You know, Often, breast reconstruction is both breasts for various reasons. That could be cancer-related, prophylactic-related, whatever. But what about the patient who has only had a mastectomy on one side, and the opposite breast is something that you have to deal with so that they have a, a matching set? So how do you approach that with your patients? It's challenging. And again, understanding the end and the beginning helps, because what I've realized over time is that I talk to the patients about what they want to do with the other breast. I want them to understand what the options are. Insurance is going to allow me to do anything you want me to do with that breast. We need to do an augment to make it bigger. They're going to pay for that, which is not normal. If we need to lift that breast, they're going to pay for that. But I want them to understand is that I will not make their breast look the same over time. They will look the same following surgery for a small period of time. But what the natural breast will do is age differently and change in its size based upon weight changes. So as a patient gains weight, as most of us do as we get older, that our natural normal breast that may have matched at one time is suddenly going to be bigger than the other breast. Yes. If they lose weight, the same problem. Gravity pulls at it different. So I just in inform the patient that I want them to do what they want to do. There's lots of reasons to keep your healthy breast. Reduces risk of complications sensation to skin and nipple is really important. We can't guarantee you will have recovery of sensation currently with nipple sparing mastectomy. It's aesthetically very important, but may not function like it used to. But if you want your breast to match, if you want to avoid a yearly mammogram of one breast, the only way we can do that is simply to have a prophylactic mastectomy of that other breast. So again, 
empowering the patient to help them make decisions gets me off the hook at some point. Because what I've heard so many times, Regina, is, Dr. Thorne, you didn't do a good job two years ago because my breasts don't match. I have failed them in an understanding of what's about to happen. If they now say that to me, I simply put out, yes, you're absolutely right. But remember the first time we met, we talked about the fact that this is the challenge of keeping your breast, right? And your weight fluctuations have created this. We can go back to surgery and fix that, but this may be a lifelong battle for you. Right? Yeah, excellent uh, things to think about. We've touched on this a little bit, but what do you generally tell patients to expect uh, for, for the average situation in terms of number of procedures and length of recovery? Yeah. So starting with recovery, that's been, I think, you know, of the four or five things I can think about in the last five years that we've been so proud of. But, you know, above the muscle reconstruction hurts less than below the muscle reconstruction. That was a big surprise to us that created the opportunity pre-pandemic to send patients home, which was great during the pandemic when we couldn't keep anybody. But patients still hurt. So with that, we started adopting a very common orthopedic uh, maneuver, which is if patients are going to have their knee replaced, typically anesthesia at the time of surgery will do an injection around the knee that will provide several days of nearly no pain. So with that, we've incorporated that concept into the plastic surgery world of breast, and so do the same thing. So patients are offered an injection prior to mastectomy, prior to taking out their expanders and putting in their implants, and it has completely upended and changed the way we prescribe narcotics. I think of narcotics in kind of three classes. There's the most strong, the middle strong, and the least strong. Right. And it used to be patients need the most strong and a lot of it, lots of refills. And of course, the opioid addiction is really brought to our attention the problems of continuously prescribing patients narcotics. So now with the blocks and above muscle, we give the lowest dose narcotic and hardly any of it. And most of our patients have enough left over for the second surgery that they don't want anything. So recovery has been significantly improved, which I'm proud about. I tell patients, great. yeah, one of the hardest things to do is we don't allow you to drive a car while you take narcotics and you can't function if you can't drive a car. <laughs> so as soon as you're off narcotics, you can drive. So most patients will be able to drive to come see us on their first post-operative thing. And then a number of procedures, you generally say two at least, or what do you say? Yeah, minimum of two. We average about currently 2.3 procedures. Some patients, uh, the fat grafting that we discussed is a little unpredictable. Fat will die as we harvest it and as we inject it into the breast and how much of that will happen is really hard to understand. So a lot of times we're filling around the implants to minimize rippling and wrinkling of implants that can be transmitted through the skin. So typically I'll see patients back several times or my staff will. I typically catch up with them in two months because it feels like at two months, that's what it's going to look like forever. Mm -hmm. And if there are things we want to address, most commonly more fat grafting, we will schedule them at that time in surgery. So they're averaging about 2.3 surgeries up front, but an understanding of future surgeries based upon implants um, needing to be maintenance replaced because of linking is the other thing. I don't think that difference too much from autologous reconstruction as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think as I understand from my friends around the country who do that, I don't do much of that. It's a solid two surgeries, if not three surgeries as well. So I think making sure that we've aligned both sets with the minimum surgeries. And as we talked about in Kansas several weeks ago, 
you know, patients want minimum surgeries, no complication and maximum results. And that doesn't matter what we're doing or who we're doing this to. Yeah, that's not too much to ask, right? (laughs) No, orthopedic, cosmetic, it doesn't matter, right? So we all want that. And we want the same for that as well. So we're very sensitive about making sure we get things right to minimize the number of surgeries our patients have to go through. Let's touch on complications a little bit. How often do you think they happen to any surgeon with this type of procedure? And what would be some of the most concerning ones? Yeah, I think there's two big ones. I tell patients there's three things I worry about. Small risk of bleeding for anybody I do anything with. It's not related to mastectomy. And if it's going to happen, it's usually within the first week or less. The two issues I worry about are healing of the skin. That's the complication from our mastectomy surgeons as they're removing that breast to be gentle on the skin, not to disrupt that blood supply. If they do, we will typically notice in the first week to two or three after surgery, maybe blistering of the skin in spots, maybe purplish discoloration in spots, or worse yet, black. Black is dead. And all of that is somewhere in between. And the problem with dead skin is two issues. One, one of the things our skin does is provide a barrier to the infection, right? To the bacteria that live on us. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get an infection unless you cut your skin and the bacteria get under it. So when I see healing issues, I'm dealing with the concern is, will that heal? So I tell patients, my eyes are no better than theirs. I can only see externally just like them. I can't tell how deep that problem is. Do I need to go to surgery, cut that skin out and close that? If I do, one, that's a complication, another unnecessary surgery, but it also affects the shape of the breast, right? Right. Unlike many things on our body, the breast has a very beautiful shape. And if you remove some of that skin, it can create flatness and a variety of things Mm -hmm. that are just really hard to overcome. So healing of the skin is the first thing we worry about. The second thing has really been the biggest problem, especially with implant-based reconstruction, and that's simply infection, whether the skin heals up or has healing problems or not. You know, the accepted infection rate is around 50% or has been reported to be as high as 50%, which is a little astonishing to me. Yeah. We're, we're proud of what we do and we track what we do to make sure that we're minimizing complications, but our infection rate has been 10 to 12% for many, many years. Much lower. Only Yeah. Only recently have we got a a way that we've kind of solved that problem to help reduce that for our patients for a very affordable cost Mm -hmm. using technology that's 50 years old. So it's really, I think, those two problems that can really up in a patient's world in the first month following their mastectomy and really cause a lot of GI upset to our plastic surgeons who are trying to deal with that. Yeah. So what would be the worst case outcome? So we have, you know, skin that doesn't survive or we have an infection around the implant. So typically, would you have to remove the implant and try to start all over at a later date or? Yes. So that's still the algorithm. If they show up with an infection, they'll get antibiotics just to minimize the sickness that they're going to have systemically, which means head to toe, fevers, feeling bad, all that. So we want to start them on antibiotics, but the real goal is to get them in surgery within 24 hours. And you're right. Unfortunately, that usually is a removal of everything, wash out the bacteria, wash out infection as best as we can. But I tell patients, we can't sterilize that space. That's not compatible with your life, the living of your skin. And so if I just put a new device in there, there's a good chance the bacteria that remain will just reinfect that. Mm -hmm. So instead, we need to take it out, leave it out a couple of months, and then come back and start over again. But that complication has really 
several profound effects all related to the body's response to the infection and that's inflammation, right? Inflammation creates significant scarring. It shrinks the soft tissues. So it'll create a problem that can really affect the aesthetic result down the road. So of the two complications, healing and infection, infection is no doubt the biggest issue in my opinion mm -hmm. and, and something really we all try to work to avoid. What about complications that may occur later down the road? I'm thinking of something called capsular contractor, if you could explain what that is and what do you do in that situation? Uh, and also just, you know, the lifespan of an implant as well. You know, as we alluded to earlier, it, it's semi-permanent, not completely permanent. So would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I tell patients, you know, once we're done with surgery, we're going to talk about long-term follow-up. It's really about them understanding what they have, what kind of implant they have, and how long that might last, or in particular, that it doesn't last forever. Those are the two things we want them to understand. For many years, I would simply inform the patient, hey, it's good to see you again. Don't forget you got a silicone implant to last roughly this long, 20 years on average. The problem with that is, like my children, nobody listened. <laughs> right. And so as they came back for their continued follow-up, and I asked them, I realized like they weren't listening. They weren't internalizing that really important point. So today we quiz patients. That's what we simply call it in the office. Hey, the quiz is about to happen. What kind of implant do you have? Will that implant last forever? Because that moment of embarrassment of them not knowing tends to drive better retention, I believe, the following year for follow-up. Yeah, I bet. So... Those patients typically will come back once a year for the first three years and then every other year forever. So education, that's step one. Now, the second part of that is I want to explain to them is like, okay, so yes, you do have a silicone implant. It won't last forever. Maybe you should be asking me, how do I know if my implant is leaking, right? Because that's the next question. And that gets to this concept that you alluded to of something called capsule contracture. So I explain to patients that capsule, a lot of times in medicine, we use terms that are just hard to understand, maybe make believe to some, yeah. but a capsule is a real thing, right? It is a very thin scar that formed around the expander and or the implant. I tell patients, I think about it, it's like your body saw whatever the expander implant was and said, I don't know what that is. I'm just going to wall it off so right. I don't have to worry about it anymore because I can't make it go away. We don't really reject implants, but that's kind of what the body's doing for that. So as a result, that capsule over time can get very thick and hard. No doubt that happens when implants leak, especially with silicone implants. I tell patients it's like the body sees that implant, gets a little worried about something's different with it, and thickens the scar to further protect you. And that translates into us as a very firm and stiff breast, not normal for a silicone implant. The silicone's still soft inside, but that capsule squeezes so hard that it makes it feel very hard. Now, capture contracture can also happen for reasons that are not well understood. We certainly know if patients have an infection and we can maintain their implant, we may be kicking the can down the road of complications because at some point they may show up with this thickened scar around the implant, even though the implant's okay. Mm -hmm. So that squeezing doesn't always happen just when implants leaking. We see it in saline implants that don't leak. We see it in saline implants that leak. It's just salt water, Correct. right? Very normal for us. So those are the things that we're feeling for and talking to them about long term. So you're right. Every patient at some point in their lifetime who has any form of implant will need that implant maintenance, which may mean simply to remove it if they're done with their reconstruction. That's the recommendation, at least for silicone. And of course, replace it if that's what the patients want as well. Mm -hmm. 
since your breast reconstruction practice is implant-based, what do you say to patients who are perhaps a little apprehensive about the idea of a breast implant? You know, there's been a lot of negative attention in the media this last decade or more. And what do you tell them to put them at ease? And how do you have them frame the thinking about the implants? Yeah. So we're alluding to a concept called breast implant illness, which is a coalition of a roughly 110 different symptoms that some women with breast implants may experience. This is something that we see almost exclusively in the cosmetic space and not so commonly in the reconstructive space. So that's the first thing to understand. The second thing to understand is what are the symptoms? And as I tell patients, I do believe these patients may be suffering from something. I'm not sure it's their implant because their complaints are associated with maybe lethargy, which means I'm tired a lot, Um, soreness, achiness, um, a variety of symptoms. And as I point out to patients as I age, I have almost all those symptoms every day and have never had an implant. Mm. So symptoms, they're not very directional in helping us understand what these patients are dealing with. But sadly, I think, is somebody put breast implant in front of these illnesses and that's sticking with patients. So I simply explained to them what we know about it, that we don't know much. We can't find much of pathology in these patients' uh, implants or the capsules around them. Uh, There's been four really good publications sponsored by our society trying to understand, is it heavy metals? Um, Is it an infection quality? What is it driving this? And a fairly small subset, but very vocal social media group of individuals. So we just don't see that much. I think it's important to explain and not dismiss those patients' needs because they're having problems. I'm just not sure it's related to their implant. And I think the big difference in the augment versus the reconstructive space is, you know, if they have an augment and they have these symptoms and they want their implants removed, we should listen to them. And certainly, in my opinion, and I have, provide that service. But for the reconstruction patient, they have to understand removal of their implants, loss of their breast. Yeah, not a great option. And what else is there? Now we're talking back to an autologous surgery and, you know, maybe years later, long, complex surgeries to reconstruct their breast. So the few patients of mine or that have washed ashore in my office over the years with concerns about that, we want to listen to them. We want to be thinking about them. There are some tests we want to be sensitive about and make sure generally their primary care doctor is plugged in and performing sure. because they can be having these problems unrelated to their implants. But it's not something I think, generally speaking, is a concern in the reconstructive space. Got it. Well, any patient stories you could relate to the listeners that might illustrate how meaningful your dedication to the surgical services? Yeah, so many. You know, as we kind of think about where we used to do reconstruction below the muscle to above the muscle, it's these patients that now I'm doing a surgery that we call conversion, moving their implants from under to above the muscle to eliminate animation and a variety of things have been so instrumental in understanding what are the real problems with a submuscular device. Yeah. And and so I've had a great relationship with them. I've known them, you know, all my practice life. And and they can impart words to me that I don't have that relationship with patients or wouldn't feel comfortable maybe asking. So I think it's really important to maintain those relationships with your patients. I like people. It's part okay. of why we, I think we all go into what we do to take care of people and help and service their needs. Absolutely. And I still do that. And, you know, I'm still old school enough where I have paper charts and still write like spouses' names and little cute things about their kids or something to help me remember who they are when I do get the options to spend some time with them. 
Well, it sounds like you really develop a connection with your patients when you can. And I know it certainly uh, when I was practicing, that was something that kept me energized and uh, moving forward, especially when you can be so tired because you're so busy, but that really keeps you going. So it sounds like that's been a great boost for you as well. It has. It, you know, it, it's always very humbling, right? A lot of times the patients will talk about we're the fun office because we're not bringing chemotherapy or radiation or sad news <laughs> or whatever, right? And right. so we want to be that fun office for them in that kind of not fun moment in their lifetime. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, as uh, we're finishing up, I'm curious what you think might be coming in the future to improve breast reconstruction and uh, whether it's something related to implants or something different. Um, anything you would especially like to see that may not even be on the horizon, but you'd really like to see be developed or happen? I think there's some really exciting things. You know, lighter weight implants are going to be very ah. important for our patients, right? The, you know, a breast is heavy, but so is an implant. And if we can make the implant lighter, that has less effect on the skin envelope. It holds up better over time. Sure. So I'm excited about that possibility over the next couple of years. I think the concept of if we could really figure out in less surgeries to maybe offer some patients that are maybe smaller breasted or have smaller breast needs um, to do the pure fat reconstruction. You know, mm -hmm. so much has changed in the last five years with above the muscle and nipple sparing and outpatient surgery. It's just blinding to me where we've gone. Like the first 10 years of my practice, nothing changed. The needle was still right there. Today, the needle has moved so far forward. And, and I think we're going to continue to see that with minimizing risk and complications to our patients, minimizing total number of surgeries. You know, I don't know what the future is. I just hope I get to practice long enough to continue to see that and put better smiles and, and happier faces on my patients following mastectomy. Oh, well, that's inspiring. Well, any final words for the listeners about our subject today? You've really imparted so much wisdom and information, and I think people will have a better understanding of the concept. I want to appreciate our time together and thank you so much for asking me to be here. I think, you know, a lot of times patients don't fully understand what all plastic surgeons do. We get too focused on botched or cosmetic or whatever you're seeing in Allure magazine, but we right. forget. And I think plastic surgeons forget where we came from. The foundation of us is in the form of reconstruction. And to me, that's still very important and rings true in my head and my years. And I'm, I'm blessed that I've been able to do this for 18 years and I hope I can do it for as long as my legs will keep up underneath of me. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Dr. Brian Thornton, thank you so much for being with us here today. And I know the listeners will really get a lot out of this. Take care. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.